around the world and coast to coast. This is the Phil Nason Show. You're listening to AFR, the Armed Forces Radio Network. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Phil Nason Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Phil Nason Show. I am so happy to have you here. We are presented by Bovada, and we are also presented by the Dollar Shave Club. We're heard daily or whenever I do this show anymore. On Armed Forces Radio, we're thrilled to be there. Got to tell you, there's a lot of things happening in the NBA. David Fisdale got fired. Lots of things going on. We're not going to talk about any of that, I don't think, because my friend Sherman's here, because the Thunder are a disaster. Their fan base is going crazy. I've been banned by half a dozen people now. Please welcome from welcome to loudcity.com, J.A. Sherman. You are in the house. What's happening, Sherman? What's up, Phil? It's been a few months, I think, since we last rapped about this. I think we last talked about, you know, during, during the summer months when everything was uh, coming up roses. And uh, guess what? Those roses are black. And, well, that's uh, what we I tried to, to say to you, but you all don't listen to me. Yeah, we got to learn our lessons, I guess, the hard way. The hard way. We're trying to soften the blow here. You know, I'm, I am the most vocal thunder basher. But my goodness, uh, David Fisdale got fired today. And I'll be talking about that on my Beyond the Arc show if you want to find that. I'm wondering, I'm curious. When does Billy Donovan become the scapegoat for this disastrous season the Oklahoma City Thunder are currently experiencing? Well, they are 8-11. and 11. Um, and, and I think if you asked me truthfully what I thought the record would be at around 20 games, and I probably would have said the opposite, like 11 and 8, 12 and 8, something like that, because I knew it would take time for them to gel, but their, their problems have been so manifest in, in the way they show up consistently every single game. And at some point you do have to question, is, is the coach part of the problem? Uh, unfortunately, because of the way the Thunder organization operates, it's always going to be difficult to get anything that could be seen as insight as to the relationship between Donovan and Presti. If you, if you all recall, Presti targeted Donovan three years ago and handpicked him, didn't really talk to anybody else. And so Donovan is his guy. Um, but at some point you have to ask the question, is he the right man for the job that is in front of him? And so far, almost a quarter into the season, it's the the question is really not answered yet. No, it isn't. You know that chemistry thing is an, is a funny thing. Mm-hmm. Boston has eleven new faces, and they won sixteen straight, lost a game, and then won two more. You know that chemistry. Yeah. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, though. They also had a college coach come in, Brad Stevens, and I, I've been really tough on him. But here's the thing, though, and people say, well, because he succeeded. Why can't Donovan? Well, two different situations. Billy Donovan walked in with a star-laden team who probably didn't listen much to him, but then they didn't listen much to the last guy they had. I don't think he's ever coached that team to the way he would like to. He's a fast-paced guy. His team's at Florida, fast-paced guys. They're playing a lot slower, this team. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's never really fair to compare the college game to the program. They're, they're like two different sports, you know this. Right. Um, but, um, but even if you just look back at the years where, where Donovan was coaching in Florida, his, his offense looks so radically different 
Uh, and I, I don't even know if it, it could even work in the NBA because it was very much a big man driven type of offense where the guards played off the bigs. And if you remember who some of his best big men were, you've got Joe from Noah, you've got Al Horford, guys who were able to pass the ball and coordinate the offense and things like that. And then the guards just kind of worked off in the big men. That right. would never fly in the NBA unless you've got like uh, a Jokic or a Marcus Solk type of player. Uh, who everybody knows that they can kind of just gravitate around him and let, and let him run the thing. Um, and so, so you know, his, his transition was always going to be bumpy. He stepped into a situation that he probably was not prepared for, which was, you know, the, the, the year of, of Kevin Durant and, uh, and all the things that happened. He was given less than a year to try and, you know, make something of it. He almost did it to his credit. But but since then, uh, he's had three radically different teams uh, since his coming in. Uh, and, and if we compare him to, to Brad Stevens, like you say, Brad was, was given an entirely different situation where he was essentially allowed to clear the deck in Boston. And the message from the top down was, we're going to build this thing over. Uh, you know, he, they were coming off of the, the Celtics' own big three era with, with Garnett and Paul Pierce and Ray Allen. And they, they needed to, to start over, and so they gave Stevens a clean slate. And the message from the top down was, we're going to rebuild this, not the message that is that is uh, prevalent in, in Oklahoma City. And so if, if Donovan was given that kind of clean slate, could he do something similar? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But but that's not the, the, the hand that he's been dealt, and, and he has to do better as a head coach in, in how he messages to his team, how he holds them accountable, uh, and how he gets them to perform, especially in the middle quarters of games. You know, that's a good answer. You know, they're not a much they're not much fun to watch. No, they're not at all. You know who I like watching this year? Philadelphia. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> they move the ball. I like watching Brooklyn too. I can't believe I just said that, but I like watching them because they they move the ball. They try all the time. Boston moves the ball. The Cavs. The Cavs are getting a lot better all of a sudden. The Warriors, I like watching them. I like watching the Knicks. Who who are you enjoying watching this season? Definitely the Celtics, uh, because I really like teams who love to grind, and and certainly their winning streak of sixteen games, I think it was, that's evidence of a team that knows how to grind. It reminds me a little bit of the Atlanta Hawks from about three or four years ago when right. they had a really good sixty win season. Um, so they play well together. They play cohesively. I like seeing things like that. Um, in, in the West, uh, I like the way the Rockets are playing. Um, you know, they, they make sense on paper. They make sense on the court. Now, ultimately it's going to come down to can, can James Harden and Chris Paul coexist in a playoff pressure cooker that we won't know until April and May of next year. But, but as far as the way that team plays, they just make a ton of sense. So, and so I, I like watching teams that can do that. Um, I think the other team that I was hoping would be a little bit further along is the Bucks. I, I think that Giannis is is right on the cusp of something, but uh, I think they're still missing a few pieces that'll help them get into that, yeah, you know, that forty-five to fifty win kind of season. Uh, and 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 of course the Seventy Sixers are are a blast because you got Joel Embiid, who uh, who he just wants to be the, he wants to own the league, kind of like Sha- Shaquille O'Neal back in the day. Uh, but but as you say, they've got a lot of pieces around him. It, it's not just a one-man show. They've actually put a really interesting and fast-paced team around him 
so they're able to play off him. Uh, ben Simmons has been great, uh, even though he doesn't have a jump shot to speak of. He he knows how to how to incorporate himself into an NBA offense. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, and then you've got uh, JJ Redick just kind of playing the veteran role to kind of keep him on the straight and narrow. Well, that's what they needed all along was a veteran. Mm-hmm. And those kids, those kids actually look up to JJ Redick. You can see it when they're playing. They listen to him. You know, the uh, Warriors have Andre Iguodala. He's out there teaching these young guys. There might be a timeout, and he pulls one of them to the side, and no one says a word to him because that's why he's there. Mm-hmm. I don't see that much with the Oklahoma City Thunder. You know what I see a lot of? And I watch huddles because I'm more interested in – because I'm a one-on-one coach of mm-hmm. tennis. Yep. I'm used to seeing – I can tell if they're listening by if they're looking at me. You don't see much of that in the uh, Oklahoma City Thunder huddles. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's, it reminds me of the slogan, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Ooh, there are well, some old dogs, too. <laughs> but, but you can if that old dog wants to get better. Uh, and, you know, and I think that's the challenge when, when players have success, you know, at to varying degrees in, in a league like the NBA and they're well-known commodities, and they know how they can produce the things that people expect them to produce, it's, it's really hard to, to send the message that, hey, you're not doing the things that you can do that can make you a little bit better on a nightly basis. Uh, and the thing that, uh, and I know we'll, we'll probably talk about Carmelo a little bit, uh, the thing that, that I'd like to see from Carmelo, and you know, he's, he is who he is, I'd love to see him set some more screens. Uh, he's got a big body. He knows how to how to you know use it and 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 move people out of the way. But it, but if I see him slip another screen uh-huh. and pop out a three point shot, I am going to scream because there's I just don't see a reason to slip a screen if you're going to pop out to the perimeter. I can see it if you're gonna if you're gonna do a quick dive to the rim. That makes sense. But if you're just going to slip the screen and pop out, well, you haven't really accomplished anything. You've probably taken away some of your shooting space. So uh, I would like to see Carmelo set some better screens uh, on ball and off ball. <laughs> I've been watching that cat play for a long time. That ain't never going to happen. <laughs> That's just not his thing. You know what happens with Carmelo is Carmelo, if he doesn't get the amount of touches he thinks he should get, he grabs a rebound, he dribbles down, and he'll shoot a three. That's how he is. That's what hurts the thunder a little bit, I think. But this is an interesting team, though. You know, they were uh, 21st in defensive efficiency last season. Mm-hmm. This year, they are number two. Yeah. Now, here's the flipper to this. In, on offense, last season, they were number 17 in offensive efficiency. Yep. This season, they're number 22. Yeah. Yep. How do you explain that? Bottom third of the league with, with a team that's theoretically got better offensive players this year a big three of superstars uh, yeah got all guys who can score 30 you know without too much difficulty if they're given the opportunity right um <clears throat> you have to if you really want to understand it you have to watch the middle quarters of these games because that's where everything falls apart wow good start I, you know what i wanted <laughs> to bring that up this yeah. is the one thing about the Thunder, and this is unexplainable, inexplicable to me. How in the heck do they get up to these big leads and then just let it wash away? 
I think um, I'm trying to remember. There was there was a game recently. Uh, oh, I think it was against the Pelicans. Okay. It was just a perfect microcosm. They went up on on the Pelicans like 20, 25 to six in like six minutes, and then they were up twenty nine to ten. And at that point, it was like, all right, they look really good on both sides of the ball. They know how to contain the their bigs and Anthony Davis and DeMarcus Cousins. They know how to limit the the offensive ability of, of Drew Holiday. They've got this thing figured out. And then on three successive possessions, I saw super quick shots on offense and them give up two dunks and a wide open three on defense. And that to me was the inflection point that changed the entire complexion of the game, where it didn't even matter that DeMarcus Cousins was ejected in the third quarter. Uh, they just they have these moments where they they seem to be going into cruise control and they lose focus in such a way that it makes them look like they just aren't interested in playing anymore, uh, where they just want to hoist a quick shot and, and kind of play out the string, move the chains kind of thing. Uh, but it happens in like the first quarter or the second quarter of the game. And, and the results are disastrous because the offense just implodes upon itself. And as we know, the, the as your offensive efficiency goes down, it becomes harder and harder to play really good defense because you're constantly in, in a compromised position. You're, you're having to deal with fast break situations, et cetera. You're not rebounding as well. Um, and so it just snowballs. So by the time you get to the fourth quarter, um, after just disastrous middle quarters, and, and the game against Dallas was a perfect example where they scored 31 points in the middle quarters against a lottery team, um, by the fourth quarter, they, they're out of energy. They're out of a collective energy where they can play at a high level, uh, and their, their offense just disintegrates, and their defensive efficiency spikes like crazy, even though they, overall they're a really good defensive team. They're leading the league in, in steals and deflections, I think. So, so there's this cumulative effect of what happens when they kind of hit the first road bump after starting well, and they don't know how to self-correct, and they don't know how to refocus themselves. And uh, just sort of on a whim, in the last two games, I, I made up something that I call the 3-to-3 the ratio, huh. or the 3-to-3 ratio, where you compare the number of three-point attempts to the number of free-throw attempts. And I concluded if it's anything higher than like 2-to-1, the offense is completely discombobulated and off the rails because they're not a good free, uh, uh, jump-shooting team, but they do have guys who can draw fouls. So if they're doing one more than the other, then it's a clear sign to me that they're they're not playing to their potential. That's a very good point, too. I've watched a lot of Eastern Conference games over the years, and that's kind of mm -hmm. the M.O. of the Indiana Pacers when Paul George was the leader, and it was kind of the M.O. of mm -hmm. the uh, New York Knicks when Carmelo was the leader. And this is why those teams mm -hmm. underachieved. I don't get it. But I do, because they're chuckers. I mean, when you put those two together, their career assists under five. Yeah, combined. <laughs> yeah, combined. They're not interested in passing the ball, and you can see that now. I mean, Carmelo Anthony has the second most passes on the Oklahoma City Thunder, yet he's like fourth or fifth in assists. Because the only time he passes the ball is when he's either stuck or he's taking the ball out. He just doesn't pass the ball. He's not going to look for me. If I break to the bucket, he's not going to pass me the ball even though I'm wide open. He's going to shoot. 
I have seen a few examples that that run contrary to that, but I think he's got a lot of muscle memory built into his offensive repertoire. Uh, you know, we saw this certainly with Kobe Bryant in the last three or four years of his career too, where it's really hard to break that mindset of of, of thinking I don't always have the best shot available. Uh, you know, especially after years and years of reinforcement where nobody calls you into account over it. Um, but I have seen a few cases where he's worked out of the post and he has uh, moved the ball. He's been able to find cutters and things like that. I, so I, I think there's the potential for it to be there. What I'd like to see more, though, is Russell Westbrook treating Carmelo as the asset that he actually is instead of the one that we would like him to be. And what I mean by that is set him up for open jump shots, get him the ball on the left block where he's effective, uh, and anything else – get him to move the ball somewhere else because that's that's not where his his strengths are anymore um you know on the fast break he needs to be the trailer shooting the threes you know things like that he needs to be on the block drawing fouls uh but anything outside of those those select few areas where he's actually really good uh his his effectiveness diminishes to the point where it it completely erodes the things that he's good at that's a good point i've watched a lot of thunder i don't watch them as closely as you but I don't see, I see the same thing. You know, the funny thing is, I see the same things the Thunder were guilty of when I used to call them the Catch and Choke Brothers, if you remember, when Kevin Durant <laughs> was there. It's the same things. Yep. So what do you have? You have this common denominator. I like yep. to call it the common denominator theory. Mm-hmm. If nothing changes and you've had several different versions of that thing, then who's still remaining? Those two are, who are remaining are Sam Presti, and Russell Westbrook. Presti's the one who got these guys. Russell Westbrook is the guy who continually plays recklessly, and it's fun to watch because he's very athletic, and he scores, but he's out there stat hunting still. He did that in the Golden State game, if you remember. And I'm wondering, when is it time to finally say Sam Presti you're responsible for all this. Or is it Russell Westbrook? Or is it a combination of the two? Or am I completely out in left field? Well, I, I think Presti needs to own it, at least in terms of the coaching. Well, he never will do that. So He, he won't do it publicly. you know. But um, it, it, we're always going to question, why, why didn't he look for a, a better commodity three years ago? You know, My, my guy would have been Ettore Messina from the Spurs. Yes. Um, yeah, there were other good guys that were out there. There was a good girl, that, too, if you remember. Uh, Becky Hammond? Yeah, didn't I write so, an article for Welcome to Loud City? I think you did. Oh, I know we talked about it, at least. No, so, I know uh, I did. It's probably still getting hits today. <laughs> so uh, so th- there were candidates out there. Um, you know, so, so he's got to own that. And you know, as far as the team that he's assembled this year, I think – we have to look at it at sort of, at least I look at it from a meta perspective in that, um, you know, one of the pushbacks we get a lot of is look how well Doma Sabonis is doing, look how well that Kanch is doing, look how well that Oladipo is doing right now. But you have to remember, they went out and got Paul George and Carmelo so they could re-sign Westbrook. Like, they were the sweetener to get him to stay. Right to to show him that they were committed to to building a very expensive team around him to give him assets that he needed to make them a competitor to make him a contender, 
Um, and the fact that it's not happening this year, at least so far, a quarter of the way through, is unfortunate. But the move was to get Westbrook to re-sign. And on that front, it was successful. Now, that leads to the question, was that the right move? Um, I would say if you're going to contend, you have to have a superstar and you got to have a couple all-stars around him. Um, that's the way the league is going right now, although Boston's making an interest, interesting case otherwise. Right. Um, you know, but but if you want to go against the Rockets, if you want to go against the Warriors, you've got to have the elite types of performers uh, in abundance. And, and Westbrook, he won the MVP. Uh, as much as that chagrins the Rockets fans, you know, and it's always kind of fun to taste their salty tears. And the Spurs uh, fans, by the way, because I kind of thought Kawhi <laughs> should have won too. I, I wouldn't argue against Kawhi. I wouldn't argue against Harden. I just know that Westbrook had an amazing season last year. He did. Yes, he did. And this year, um, he's not. He's actually playing pretty poorly. Well, uh, that's because they're not giving him those fouls that he was getting before. And he has yeah. no. And he's not getting the rebounds that he got before. Because they've got mm-hmm. people in there who rebound now. Yeah, but they're a worse rebounding team. They were the first or second best rebounding team last year with the rebounding strategy that they incorporated. Now they're bottom third, and and it's hurting them, especially when they're giving up those offensive rebounds. It's wearing down that defense, which is reliant on the perimeter players being able to cover open space. And so you know, part of that is, of course, the loss of Ennis Cantor. He's an, a phenomenal rebounder. Mm-hmm. Um, Domus Sabonis was a good rebounder for the first half of the season before he kind of hit the rookie wall last right. year. So, so they are having to incorporate a different kind of defensive system. Uh, and so far, the defensive rebounding has been a weakness. And, and Westbrook is not rebounding as aggressively either. Uh, I don't know if that's by design or if he's just not, he doesn't have the, the juice to do it or what. I mean, it takes a lot out of you when you're 6'3", six, 6'4", uh, and trying to trying to do that on a night, nightly basis. But they're, they're clearly slipping it uh, from, from a rebounding perspective, and, and they've, they've lost a lot of offensive punch because of it on the offensive glass. Well, they have. You know, one of the things that they don't do much anymore, last season was kind of fun to watch the developing pick-and-roll game between him and, St- him and Steven Adams. Mm-hmm. And, and now you see it at the beginning of games, and then you don't see it so much, although they try to get him the ball a little more. But they don't do it at the right times. And, and you know, I look at that team and I say, these guys have got so many years in the NBA, and their mm-hmm. basketball IQ is like zero. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, Steven Adams, it, that's another fourth-quarter metric I look at, is how many, how many touches, how many shot attempts does Steven Adams get in fourth quarters? Because he shoots a high percentage because he shoots – dunks and layups and point blank you know eight footers right uh so if you're if you're setting him up to get those shots you're gonna be doing well um and and a lot of the time especially in fourth quarters it does feel like the coach or somebody is saying hey it's time to get steven a touch you know for a shot attempt and so then they force it they cause they commit a turnover or set him up so he gets an offensive foul called against him or something like that and then they don't go back to him for the rest of the game. And it's, it's, it's so sad because he is a guy who has a decent basketball IQ. Right. He understands what he can do and the space that he can create uh, you know, around the rim and on the perimeter and things like that. He knows he moves really well for a giant. Um, 
And, and so when they move away from Adams and what he brings to the table, they make their job harder. And, and I, I think that's, that's probably one phrase that I would use over and over again, especially in the middle of games, is the Thunder make their offensive sets so much harder than it needs to be. Uh, they, they don't produce a lot of easy buckets. Uh, and even against the Mavericks, the Mavericks were getting open shots all night, point-blank layups, wide-open threes. And the question is, how does a team that bad get that many wide-open shots? They shot 49% on the night uh, against a team like the Thunder that should be superior in a lot of those uh, positional uh, and uh, in, in a lot of those positional ways. So, I mean, you got you got to confront that reality that bad teams are playing easier, quicker, and smarter than the Thunder are. Well, that makes sense. I don't know what to tell you, dude, really. Uh, I, I would think that uh, getting a new coach probably is not the answer. I've, I've heard Mark Jackson's name bandied about. It's really interesting when you watch fans talk about these things that they know nothing about. Yeah. It's cute that they talk about that. I mean, they want to help their teams. Well, I know. I mean, we, we, we definitely like to live with short-term memories. Um, the Fitzdale thing, that I mean, they were clearly struggling, and, and I didn't think that – the, the Grizzlies were doing as well as they had the potential to do, right. but I liked. I thought he ha- he had a vested interest in trying to do things differently. At least that's what he talked about a lot. Uh, he might have been losing his team, but you know, and, and maybe maybe it's tongue in cheek. But you know, a lot of our, our our readers like, yeah, let's go get Fitzdale and get rid of Donovan. I'm like, well, you know, you're you're inheriting good things, but you're inheriting bad things too. And I feel the same way about Mark Jackson. That I mean, people forget. He did not end well in Golden State. Uh, he he helped get them from being bad to being good, but they had some pretty spectacular flameouts in the playoffs under his watch. Um, and it wasn't until they installed Kerr's system with uh, uh, Adams and uh, Alvin Gentry, you know, running the offensive defensive uh, sides of things, that they really morphed into something impressive. Impressive. Uh, and so that's exactly yeah, right. And so. And so, you know, Mark Jackson would be great for a rebuild, I think, for a turnaround type of situation. Um, he's, he's not quite as insane as uh, Scott Skiles uh, is, but, uh, but he's that kind of coach. And I, that is certainly not what the Thunder need right now. No, they wouldn't. And, you know, the thing is, he taught those kids how to play defense. And Steve Kerr mm-hmm. talks about that all the time. The greatest contribution that Mark Jackson made to the Golden State Warriors was telling them they had to play defense for 48 minutes. He couldn't do that yeah. with the goal. He couldn't do that with the Thunder because they wouldn't listen to him. Yeah, but also to to convince them, yeah. And remember, at the time, this was a, a backcourt with Steph Curry and Monte Ellis. You know, tiny guards uh, who just wanted who liked to shoot the ball a lot. Not that they had to, but that they could. That you don't have to be you know, like a Tony Allen or Andre Robertson type of player to to play effective defense. You just have to be in the right place at the right time and talk to each other and communicate. And understand what your scheme is trying to accomplish, right. which is pushing the other team into into low percentage zones. It's not just about you know getting turnovers and shot clock violations every possession. It's about incremental advantages at different parts of the court. And uh, and so to me, that's a very intelligent way to to approach it. And then when, of course, when they got Draymond, he kind of took it to the next level. Um, but there's no reason the Thunder couldn't have that same approach if they're all on the same page, and they're not, especially in fourth quarters, um, which is why 
other teams have zero problems scoring on them when the, when the game is on the line. Well, that's true. You know what? The greatest thing that Mark Jackson did, though, was convince the ownership to trade Monte Ellis, bring in Andrew Bogut. Now Bogut had, or Steph Curry had someone to protect him. When yep. Bogut was in his prime, that they won 85% of his starts. That's how good that team was. That was the turning point right there. That gave Steph the chance to play more and be the guy, Clay Thompson to be the guy, and they went off and did some great things. And that's not going to happen in Oklahoma City with a Mark Jackson. I saw David Blatt's name mentioned, too, and I think I commented on your site about that. I like David Blatt. I'm a friend of his. He's a friend of mine. I go back with this guy to the European days when I first started all this stuff. And I got to tell you, he would have his difficulty, too, because they're not going to listen to him either. And the reason they're not going to listen to him is because LeBron James didn't listen to him. They're not going to respect yeah. him. And that's how this works. David Black could do good things with this team, but they wouldn't listen. The, and also, he would have trouble with the media, just like he did in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. He's very, how do I put this? He's a very confident guy. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, but this is coaching in the NBA. Like, in, in my opinion, there's like three or four really good coaches. Well, let's name them. I mean, I, you, you might disagree with a few, but I would put Stevens there, Popovich. Um, I like Thibodeau, although his weaknesses are, you know, they're there. Uh, I like Steve Kerr because he knows how to delegate. I like Spolstra. Uh, I, I think he understands how to, how to do things innovatively. Um, but for them, and, and there's some bad coaches. I don't even want to go into the, who they are. No, no, but we don't need to. Most, but for the most part, like 20, 20, like two thirds of the coaches are about the same, in my opinion. Um, you know, they have their strengths. They have their weaknesses. They coach to the level of talent that's on their team. Um, and so swapping out a Donovan for coach X or Y or Z will, will not move the needle at all because you're, you're just trading one thing for another. It's, you know, it's, it's what makes a good coach is he surrounds himself by smart people because it's really hard to be a top down guy anymore. Even Popovich understands that, um, you know, different guys who will have the ear of different players. Um, and then challenge them to make them better. And, uh, you know, and, and, and as much as I know Russell Westbrook respects Mo Cheeks, I don't know if Mo Cheeks makes Russell a better point guard anymore. Um, I think he helps keep him kind of level-headed. But in terms of saying, you know, you need to, like, stay on your man on defense or you need to not be afraid to set a screen from time to time, um, I don't know if he really has that kind of cachet anymore, you know, as, as Russell is now 28 years old, he's married, he's got a child, different life stage and all that. And so, um, yeah, I, I just firing a coach and hoping things will change overnight is, is a pipe dream. It really is like the Grizzlies are going to experience a momentary spike in their performance and then they're going to play 500 ball the rest of the year. Unfortunately, that's just how it goes. Plus, that's um, what their talent level is. They are what you are. What your record says you are. Yeah, I mean, it's the the Bill Parcells saying, "You are what you are," and you know they're going to have to figure out who they are in the off season. Um, and and 
you know, hopefully the Thunder can figure a few things out and play better this year. But, you know, jettisoning a coach at this point, I mean, you're basically throwing in the towel and saying goodbye to Paul George. You're yeah, asking and I, for trouble. I just, I don't think that is the right move most of the time, unless, you know, unless it's just so bad and the, and the team is in an outright revolt. Like, I'm, I can't even believe Fred Hoiberg. Hoiberg is still a coach. Uh, it doesn't seem like he's got very much uh, support in that locker room, but there he stands. Um, so, you know, I just reassessed in the summertime, but now is not the time to make that kind of radical shift. Yeah, that's tough. I remember when uh, the Grizzlies fired Mark Ivoroni and they hired mm-hmm. Lionel Hollins, and that turned out pretty good. Sometimes a fresh voice is very good. Look what you don't see too many tennis players firing their coaches during the season. Yeah. Well, they, they, yeah, well but they don't succeed <laughs> after they do, usually. Look at yeah. Novak Djokovic. He fired Boris Becker, hired Andre Agassi, and ended up taking the rest of the year off. So, I mean, <laughs> what are you going to do? But in this situation, now I guess it's time for me to name my guys I like. All right, who do you like? Coach Popovich, of course. Mm-hmm. And the reason he's successful is not just because he knows how to relate and knows how to bring people around him, but he's got a great eye for talent, and he finds guys that he knows he can coach. That's important, too. He's he's the boss. When you compare a guy like Billy Donovan to uh, Greg Popovich, that's not, that's not nice because it's not the same thing. Yeah. You know, Billy Donovan, I don't think he has any say or very little say in who his personnel is. They just say, go win. I think the same thing happened in Memphis to Fisdale. Uh, Rick Carlisle is my second one. I'm not. I'm not naming in order. Just five guys like you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Rick Carlisle's yep. done a marvelous job. You know what? They've never tanked, and yet they're always competitive. Mm-hmm. I mean, look That's at fair. and look at the way he's coached Dirk. Dirk can barely walk down the floor, but he still kills <laughs> folks. Yep. Eric Spolstra. Look at his the job that he had. What he got stuck with. Mm-hmm. He did a great job. I like Steve Kerr because he was the one who really, really hooked up those Splash Brothers. Mm-hmm. I, Brad Stevens is a good coach, but here's the, and he's really impressed me this year with what he's done with Kyrie Irving. Yeah, I would love to see him get stuck with a team of superstars like Donovan did, mm-hmm. and see how that would work out before I anoint him anywhere. I like Mike Budenholzer, too. Remember that 61-win team? That was pretty good. Yeah, but then they <laughs> took his team apart. So. Well, yeah. they did. He he actually did because he was the president, too. Remember? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he ain't that anymore. He's probably the next one to go. But I think he would not be upset about that. But honestly speaking, the Thunder, are they have a ways to go. Westbrook, I, I don't understand, you know, Sometimes he plays this possum game, this passive game. That ain't who the Thunder are. When they beat the Warriors, and I and I said this the other day, and I'm going to stand by this. The Warriors pulled their starters seven minutes to go in the fourth quarter. They That was still a very reachable game for them. Mm-hmm. That was a schedule loss. That was their fourth game on the road in six nights or seven nights. The night before Thanksgiving... They had two games in a row after Thanksgiving, back-to-back. I think he just said, screw it. We'll call this a schedule loss. Because that's the only time I've seen the Thunder play with any intensity at all. And that was the worst I saw Golden State play. Yeah, for sure. And if you look at those 
key middle quarters that I keep harping on. Oh, yeah. That's one of the few games where the Thunder actually played better than the opponent and happened to be the defending champions. And how screwy is that, that they can do that against the Warriors and yet they can only produce 13 and 18 against the Mavericks in, in those same middle quarters. Um, and it, they were focused. I, honestly, the Thunder didn't even play great in that game. No. Um, I mean, Westbrook, I, I, I would put his game at like a B plus. Like a year ago, that was an average night for him, honestly. Um, you know, the you know the thirty four, you know, ten and nine or whatever it was. Like that was a that was an average night a year ago. So it's not like Westbrook, you know, did a Westbrook bomb. Uh, Carmelo was solid. Paul George was was fine, but they were just focused and they were they and they did things with a purpose in mind. Um, and that's just, it's been lacking so much this year. I mean, they're, they're sitting with 11 losses. It's not even in December yet. Um, and eight or nine of those have been just terrible meltdowns um, where they've lost double-digit leads. Uh, it's, there's just a, an alarming lack of focus and, and playing for each other that, uh, you know, it's got to come from somewhere or else this, this is going to be like the Lakers in 2012, 2013. Uh, that's kind of the low watermark that I've, that I kind of set for myself because that team hated playing each other. Uh, and I hope it, the thunder don't go down that road. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that. Remember the game before Carmelo Anthony went, went out with that sore back. Mm -hmm. He came down the floor three times and didn't get the ball. So then he put his hands on his hips twice. And then he threw up his hands in the air. Like, forget this. And I went, okay, that's perfect. He won't play tomorrow. Watch. And he didn't. So <laughs> so the thing is, is, you've got that. This isn't a chemistry issue at all. This is about who's going to run the show and who ain't. And these guys are used to, these guys, Paul George and Carmelo Anthony, those guys are used to being the guy in the last minute of the game, win, lose, or draw. If the Thunder want to win basketball games, it has to be Westbrook. It's his team. That's my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I'm just looking at it, looking it up quick. But yeah, the the, the game I, you're talking about the, um, the 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 game they played against the Bulls. Well, the next game that was against the Mavericks, he didn't play that game, as you said. Uh, the Thunder looked great. <laughs> they played without Carmelo. They played without Stephen Adams. They controlled the game from beginning to end uh, for the most part. Yep. Uh, sometimes that is the best message that you can send with somebody who doesn't feel like they're getting touches or enough love or something like that is, you know, we don't really need you. You Have know, you watch the Knicks this year? A little bit. I mean, uh, just on the periphery. They're much better without him. Yeah. Tim Hardaway surprised me, you know, so that's great. Well, um, so far, it's only 20 <laughs> games in. He's going to regress yeah. too, but... Uh, this team, it, I wouldn't write the Thunder off just yet. But seriously, it's 20 games into the season. You already got a, 10 losses, 11 losses. It's going to yep. take probably, what, about 45 games, 45 wins to uh, make the playoffs? That yeah. means they got to yeah, play, I, what, I, about... That means down the stretch, and I know it's only November, but that means they have to win probably... 36 more games? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. 37? Can they win 37 more games the way they play with these meltdowns? 
they can definitely lose 37 more games. Well, that's the thing. Uh, if they don't solve these problems. Hey, this schedule doesn't get any easier either. Okay. Orlando plays nice ball, by the way. Very fast paced, and they'll be at home. Then they go back to Minnesota and play, or home for Minnesota. Then they've got the Spurs who don't like them. Utah, who is a tough go. Brooklyn doesn't lay down for anybody, especially at home. Memphis might have the ship righted by then. Marcus All doesn't like those guys, so that's fine. Then they got Charlotte, Indiana, Philadelphia, the Knicks, Denver, Utah. That's a tough stretch. This team could be in real bad shape by January first. They could, but but here's the thing: is that all of those, I mean, and those are quality opponents. Don't get me wrong. Right, but they're all winnable games. The the opponent doesn't matter. I mean, it, it clearly doesn't. I mean, if you contrast how they played against the Warriors with how they played against the Pistons in the second half and then the Mavericks wow. and, and the Kings earlier in the season, you know, like the opponent is not the problem because they go into the gutter against anybody. So it, it's, it's all on them and it's all about what they know that they can do well and actually executing and performing. Um, and just keeping their heads in the games when the other team makes a run or makes an adjustment or they have a bad stretch or something like that. Um, it, it won't matter if they're playing, you know, the, the Kings again or the Celtics or the Cavaliers. I really don't think it matters. It's all about whether they decide if they're going to sacrifice a little bit of each person's game for the greater whole. And that's just it. And that's going to take a whole lot of help from somebody. I don't know who that is, my friend. With somebody. Great stuff today, partner. It's always yeah, great to you. it's always great to work with you. We had some uh internet issues tonight again. Oh sorry. No, it's on my end. It's okay. okay. Something popped. I think I plugged I carry a socket thing or a, a surge protector with me. And uh. I think we had a surge. But it's all good. Thanks for being here as always. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. That was J.A. Sherman. You can find him over at welcometoloudcity.com, and that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Phil Nason Show. Until next time, you all take care of yourselves. Be good, and most important. Ladies and gentlemen, my mother thanks you, my father thanks you, my sister thanks you, and I thank you.